Father, we're so grateful for those words, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all of heaven's armies is with us. It is inconceivable to us of the eternal joy that you have to squeeze into this building. Lord, when it was a car dealership, when it was a merchandise store, you saw it as a church. And you longed for us to see it as well, to move in, and to experience the, the power, the peace, and the hope of the love of God. Father, thank you for coming into this building, sitting on our right and left, to be above us and below us, in us, closer than the marrow in our bones. Thank you that you look at our hearts with all of their struggles and failures, and you still want to be with us. Thank you, God, on those days when we decline being with you, you are still with us. That you will not walk away from us. You will not walk away from us. So now, Lord, you're here. Therefore, the answer for our every longing is here. So we reach out and we want to touch God. And we want to be touched by God. Our answer, God, is not an answer. Our answer is our creator, the giver of life who is eternally alive. So come, God, make us alive, ever-increasing life. Through Christ we pray with gratitude. Amen. This is my second and concluding message on our, our mini-series on, on grief. And um, I think there are three reasons that I wanted to do this with you. Number one is I really thought it was simply the will of God last week and this week that I speak on grief. Not only because of our corporate sorrow as we walk through the death of Miles Johnson, that helped us all put our feet in the starting blocks of needing help big time. But I knew that by allowing that sorrow to unleash other sorrows, it was the will of God that we grieve together for two weeks and learn how to grieve with hope. And after last week's message, I was bombarded gloriously with emails and texts and phone calls of just people releasing all sorts of sorrows. And it was a kindness of God to do that. Second reason that I spoke on that was because I thought it would be helpful if I just laid out a few principles of how people throughout uh, history and time, historical times of grieving, how, what they were feeling, that it, it might sort of somehow that in itself comfort you, that you wouldn't feel like anything abnormal was going on. Definitely, definitely completely sorrowful, but that there's others like you that feeling like life is totally out of control and their, their camaraderie and empathy would, would be of assistance. And the third reason that I spoke is because as we move from the point of sorrow, from ground zero, to recovery, which I respect is, takes time and grace. So as we move weeks and months away from the initial contact of loss, that you could at least see maybe where you would be going and should be going by looking at a pathway not only of reaction but of recovery. About 12 years ago, I stood before a group of people to minister to a young woman who had lost a baby. That child had died after about eight weeks of, of living in NICU. And Lisa, my wife, has done an enormous job, of a, gr a great job of continuing and I have tried, but we really thought that day, and we still believe that that young girl sort of stopped and got stuck in a pit of sorrow. 
And so I preached on grief because it is possible on the way to recovery to stop at a certain phase and to get stuck. So if you are like somewhere between a year and two years out and see yourself here, you might just need to cry out for help. And that's why I wanted to go through this series for you to say, I'm stuck and I need, I need someone to help getting out of my, my pit of sorrow. I've done a lot of talking, meditating, reading, researching my own heart and the hearts of others. I want to give you these three resources. I think they'd be helpful to you who are grieving. The first is a, uh, an interview with, between Rick Warren uh, and Stephen Curtis Chapman, both of them fathers who've lost children. It's a long interview, but it's glorious because right in the middle of the interview, Stephen Curtis Chapman stops three times and begins to sing songs that he wrote after he lost his five-year-old daughter or in subsequent months, years. So it's great because the songs are important for you to hear. Second, uh, Nancy Guthrie, anything the woman writes, anything she speaks, probably anything she breathes, you should be a part of that. She is great at helping you process your grieving and your role as a comforter. And then John Piper uh, has a good brief. If you're not in the mood for something long, I think his five-point message on grief uh, uh, under Pastor John, Ask Pastor John of Desiring God, is, is helpful at this time. So last week we looked at this verse, built the entire message around that, and sort of going back this week. The grief that godly people, even godly people, experience at loss, Acts 8 to a preacher, Persecuted for righteousness, lost his life because of his proclamation of the gospel. Acts 8 2 Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Building upon that, looking at what does deep mourning look like, deep grief look like, we looked at five, six, seven reactions that are normal and that pretty much everybody has to go through. Covered them last week, I'll just repeat them. Shock, disorientation, loneliness and depression, anger and regret, and fear. That's sort of a reaction stage. And then we went into what we thought was healthy recovering, biblical recovering, which is years. But it starts someplace, so we decided to start with point number one. Do not interpret God's silence as God's abandonment. God did not save you to desert you. Jesus Christ experienced great loneliness on the cross, voiced that loneliness, but God the Father loved him as much as ever. He just couldn't feel the love of God. That was point one last week. We proceed with point two of this week. Do not be surprised that heaven does not completely comfort you. Every time a believer dies, we rejoice. That believer is now in the city of God. That's good news. I mean, even Jesus Christ found it necessary to comfort us with the good news of the reality that he is going on ahead of us to prepare a city, a house, a multi-room mansion for us. If Jesus found it helpful to talk about heaven, I as a pastor should take comfort. And rarely is a funeral service ever conducted without John 14 reference. My favorite reference to heaven, however, occurs in regard to the death of Stephen. That as he was dying, the Bible says that he was given a profound sight that I think every believer gets but in Acts chapter 8, we are allowed to see with Stephen what he is seeing at his dying. Verse 55, Acts 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The only time in Scripture where you'll see Jesus standing 
in heaven is when a believer is welcomed home. I like this because these people who buried Stephen heard him and they saw him seeing heaven. And yet Acts chapter 8 verse 2 that we begin with today says they still deep mourned deeply for him. They knew he was in heaven, yet they grieved loss. There's a belief in the Christian community that if your faith is strong, somehow you'll hurt less than people of the world. That's a wrong belief. The world is broken, and when you have something that you love is broken or you're broken, you will hurt like everybody else in the world. Faith in Christ does not mean that we hurt less than the world. What faith in Christ means is we hurt without despair. We hurt, it's just not mixed with despair. Let me tell you what despair is like. Despair says God is not good, God does not care, God is not all wise, and He's not working with a purpose. It's the way the world grieves. We don't grieve like that. We hurt the same in regard to loss. We just don't have the added pain of despair. Great losses. Nancy Guthrie says this so sweetly with the loss of her two children. Both of them died at six months. Great losses are worthy of great sorrow. You cannot love anybody deeply without hurting deeply. The depth of your pain, which feels out of control right now, simply reveals the richness of the relationship. Number three, do not rush the pain of grieving. It takes a lot of time to work through sadness. It takes a lot of time to be sad. So don't treat it as odd when in the oddest place of the world, right in the middle of the grocery store, you're sad and you cry. Those tears are rivers. All the tears are rivers of healing washing over this ball of sadness in your heart. That's what those tears are doing. Don't rush through that. Rick Warren said when he lost his son to suicide... A few years ago, he didn't go to church, he didn't preach, or he didn't go to church in an official capacity. So he didn't serve, he didn't write sermons, he didn't speak in any speaking engagements, and didn't go to any staff meetings for 122 days. Because he needed that time. God uses time and grace... Vital that those two are combined. God uses time and grace to overcome what seems to be an impossible healing of our sorrows. One day at a time. The will of God. God didn't give us a map. Nobody gets a map of what your life was going to be like. Nobody gets a map of what your healing is going to look like. The will of God is a scroll that's unrolled one day at a time. So if today is a crying day, today is a crying day. And you lay down, and the will of God today is that you cry, and tomorrow will be different. It may not be better. It's going to be different than today. And the next day will be different. Number four... Accept the gift of hurting less when God lessens the hurt. It's a very interesting way that that's phrased. Again, this is, was very helpful to me by listening to Nancy Guthrie processing her own hurt. But she said, there's something about grieving that does create a nearness to the one that you've lost. Grieving is a connector. And it's a, it, as hard as it is, it's a precious connector because you're, it is the way that you are 
reaching, reaching out. And then, one day, God's grace comes in a new, surprising way. And you wake up that day and you're grieving a little bit less. And then you hear one of those false voices that it's wrong to have joy today. It's wrong to grieve less today because you're so used to grieving. And the voice says this, you no longer love the person the way that you used to because you're hurting less False voice. True voice comes from this wisdom of Nancy Guthrie. Your love for that person is not defined by your own going misery. Living the rest of your life in pain does not validate how much you loved them. You honored them by loving them well on earth. Now you honor them and you love them by loving the God they see face to face and by loving Him as they wish for you to enjoy Him. But we don't honor God nor them by believing we need to spend the rest of our life in bottomless sorrow. Again, Nancy Guthrie, we have to give grief permission to loosen its grip on us. So on, the, on those days when God brings pleasure to your life, enjoy that pleasure as a gift. It might be a cup of coffee. It might be a phone call from a friend. It might be a devotional in a book that points you to scripture, it might be sunshine on your face when it's cold and the weather perfectly combines, the sun perfectly combines that you're warm while you're cold. And you just thank the Lord for that, that moment. None of those things are going to come close to healing you, but they're pleasures that God wants you to have. One thing that we need to learn as believers, joy and grief can coexist. In fact, joy is how we glorify God. Joy and grief must coexist. He will bring both of them into our life at the same time. Number five, it is right to be marked by grief, but not defined by grief. One day... Every believer in this room is going to go to heaven and see Jesus Christ. We saw a glimpse of him just a minute ago when we were singing. There was happiness in your soul when y'all were singing. You were seeing, tasting the goodness of the Lord. And I'd like to pause right here and ask you, if, if this was your last day on earth, would you see Christ? Is your life ready to see the Lord? Have you repented of your sin? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you died today, would you, would you be in heaven forever? Or would you be excluded from God and his city? One day we're going to see Christ if we believe and repent. And when you see Jesus Christ, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see scars. The same scars that Thomas saw post-resurrection. Thomas said, I'll not believe unless I see the scars. The resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take away the scars of Calvary. He is forever scarred. But the scars of Calvary do not define who he is. They marked him, but they do not define him. They marked him as a man of sorrows, but he is defined as a God of triumph, marked but not defined by scars. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
That's what marked him. Death marked him that day. Didn't define him. What defined him was God's favor, eternal favor on his life as the Son of God in the resurrection. This is what defined Christ. Verse 9, Philippians 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. So Jesus Christ experienced death, but he is greater than his death. So as you grieve and mourn, you'll be marked by loss, but you'll not be defined by loss. You're not defined by your grief. You know what you're defined by? You're defined by the fact that you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ and will inherit all the pleasures and the riches of heaven. You are defined by the fact that you are a person who has been forgiven of all your sin in whom the eternal Spirit of God dwells. You are defined by someone who's been led and is being led by perilous storms to the celestial shores of the city of God. This is what defines you. Every pain that comes into your life occurs under the canopy of God's fatherly, eternal, pain, feeling, sorrow, bearing, triumph, producing love. Number six. Embrace the gift of friends who reach out to you with trembling lips. Everybody that knows me knows that words are really important to me. Once I get on stage, it's about all I've got. So every word is very important, including that phrase, trembling lips. Because when you're grieving... Your friends come, your house, hospital. Their lips don't know how to move. They don't know what to say. Your grief frightens them. They're scared of saying anything for fear of saying the wrong thing. 33 years I've been pastoring and I'm still searching for when I see that family. This time I'm going to say something better than the last time. Nope. Awkward as ever. Afraid as ever. And I leave the conversation every time with a little bit of regret Wish I wouldn't have said that or prayed too long. So I go to the next moment, learning a little bit. But let me tell you what is good about you going. You go, don't know the right thing to say, but you know what your friends appreciate? You had the courage to show up. And that's what they'll remember. You tried in something that's impossible. One of the most valuable documents I've got on my computer is a letter written to me by a woman trying to comfort her grieving friend. And she just needed to express her own agony that she is unable, unable, to comfort her friend whom she loves so much. And I appreciate that letter because it represents so well all of our hearts. Can I encourage all of you who are attempting to grieve, I mean attempting to comfort a griever today, a grieving person? Let me encourage you with something that's massively discouraging. (laughs) 
there is nothing you can say that will help. Make their pain any less. There is nothing that you can say that will make their pain any less. So I want to take the pressure off of you of trying to think that thing up. Just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you hurt so deeply. In the late 1980s, I went to, uh, I, w- I was in my church outside of Augusta, and somebody in our Wednesday night prayer meeting told me about John and Janet in University Hospital. New parents of an eight-week-old baby that was on a ventilator and was not going to live. I mean, it would be a miracle. But in all probability, the the child was not going to live. And uh, these the person who told me was friends with them, but I wasn't. They were not in our church. They were in no church. They were not Christians. And like I hear this, and the next thing I hear is God saying, on my heart, not to my ears, to my heart, I want you to go walk into their sorrow." in that NICU. And I didn't know them. And I walked, I walked into that hospital room and I told them, you don't know me, I don't know you, and I cannot feel what you're feeling today. But I'm here to say I care about the pain that you're feeling. And Probably said something else, awkward, probably tried to pray, read scripture, left. Four days later, the child dies, and it's John, the father, calls me and said, would you do our boy's funeral? They're unbelievers, and they want a church funeral. I did it. It didn't go well. Lots of loud crying. I felt awkward. I felt in the way. The next Sunday, 30 people from that funeral show up. All they know is lost people. So 30 people, 30 lost people show up at our little country church, almost doubled the church. <laughs> we got our first youth minister. Out of that funeral, so much happened. And I later asked John, I said, why did you call me when I don't know you? He said, because you were the only minister and only chaplain who walked into that NICU and said that you don't know how we feel. And he said, that honored us so much that you would admit that you don't No. So let me just tell you, if you're going to go comfort people, you're going to grieve in different ways. I mean, you're going to comfort in different ways. I don't really like the way that I comfort. You may not like the way you comfort, but just get over it. And just go do your thing. Some of you comfort with tears. Some of you comfort with meals. Both of them are very loving. I had a friend this week that called me and said, would you check with the family because I would like to establish a scholarship in the name of Miles Johnson for athletes at Dorman who may struggle to go to college and we help them out in in his honor. And he said, I'm going to put the first $10,000 in. And I just love this. This is the way he comforts. This is something he can do. But he couldn't do this today. But he could do that. Number seven. Embrace the paradox that serving is a part of healing. 
So we saw earlier Stephen, great preacher, crowd turned on him, he died, went to heaven. And the crowd that turned on him soon turned on their, his friends, and they were forced out of this city, persecuted as he was, and they had to move to a new city, refugees. They go down to Samaria, big-time revival breaks out there. But what I love is Acts chapter 8, verse 4, what they did in their grieving. Those who had been scattered, Stephen's friends, they were grieving. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So again, let me stress to you, when I talk about serving, I'm talking about people that are moving past this ground zero of cataclysmic loss. I'm not saying day two that, you know, you could be this great serving person, but I'm saying in the process of recovery, serving is a part of your healing. So be looking for that. It will be a way in which God is speaking to you. I've even told people before um, that even while you're grieving and somebody comes to visit you, what a blessing it is for you to get the words out of your mouth, thank you for coming. They're frightened. They're scared. And now you serve them. Thank you for coming. Because the Holy Spirit is, is leading you to that form of obedience and it's part of your serving. Thank you for coming. And then you can tell them, but you've stayed too long, so move along. You know, it's tempting to look at the path of healing and say, when I get to the end of the path, that's when I'm going to start serving. But that's not the way healing works. This is the way the principle of biblical healing works. When you're too weak to give, God increases your strength by giving what you do not have. When you're too weak to give, he increases your strength by giving out of your weakness. That's how he makes you stronger. And you're going to be enormously useful to the Lord in as you heal, while we want you to heal. You're going to be enormously useful in the future because you're going to be able to relate to specific sorrows that no one else can relate to. I think of, um, I think of a divorced woman that might come to this church and feeling out of place because it's a place of families and it's a place where, you know, People already have this safety net of community and she comes alone, he comes alone. Who better to feel that discomfort than somebody who's been divorced? The very thing that was crushing to a divorced person is now an asset because it makes them have a more sensitive radar for lonely people. But being a blessing like that only comes if you are in the process of healing. Number eight, grieve in the presence of a grieving Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Love that. And a related verse in Hebrews, that's 4.15 and then 5.8. Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. I mean, there was never a time when Jesus was disobedient, but there was a time where his maturity was incomplete. And his maturity was completed by suffering. In other words, Jesus came into this world, God came into the world through Jesus in order to feel what does it feel like to be hurt by the world. Jesus reached out and touched the world, and it touched him back with nails, crowny thorn, a stone-laden whip, rejection by enemies, betrayal by friends. So Jesus could say, I can sympathize with your pain. One of the greatest 
things he ever said. The promise of Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And for those of you who are exegetically superior to me, you might say, I think that's talking about people who are mourning over their sin. It is true. But I will make my argument from the greater to the lesser here. If Jesus Christ came because he sees people who are mourning, they feel guilt from an abortion, they feel guilt from an addiction, they feel guilt from a failed relationship, they feel guilt from... They feel, and they fear, then they fear, they fear hell. They know they've, they've failed God. And they're mourning their sin. They're mourning lost years. They're, they're mourning mistakes that cannot be made up. You can't wash that away what you did. They're mourning this. Jesus Christ came to lay down his life on a cross to take that mourning over sin away to take the fire of hell away so you will not fear hell and you will not mourn over your past because it's forgiven here's my argument if he is concerned enough about you to take away an eternal sorrow over a heaven denying sin that you committed if he is concerned about your eternal sorrow, he is concerned about your earthly sorrow. If he's concerned about the great sorrow, he's concerned about your immediate sorrow. He's not going to take it away on earth. That's heaven to come. But you need to have comfort that if you mourn, you will be comforted. That is his promise. The one thing that you cannot miss on in scripture Jesus came to be with grieving people everything he did was a pointer to the comfort that's coming every person he raised from the dead he didn't raise all but he raised some to say I will do that to all he didn't heal all but he did heal some to say I will do that to all I raised some I will heal all I raised I healed some I will heal all in Christ He's a comforter. The whole scripture is God coming into our world to comfort us, to grieve with us. Everybody that knows me knows that I find great, I find great comfort. I can't go through death without going to John 11. I, I can't. Because I need to know that there's a God, Jesus Christ here. His friend Lazarus died. Jesus knew he was about to raise him from the dead. But when he came and stood outside the tomb where Lazarus had been buried for four days, and Jesus saw his family weeping over the loss of Lazarus that he was about to undo, Jesus cried. This is getting very close to a place where I can, I'm comforted by God that he cries. I couldn't believe it. Last night, Lisa and I were talking. She's always asking me last minute, you ready for Sunday? No, close. And then she reads me something. And I love it. It was, it was posted by Ali. Uh, Allie Hoy's mom. Uh, I did Allie's funeral a, a little over a year ago, and Kristen is a, good, is a good friend of our family, and she posted this on Facebook last night. And Lisa said, I think you would find this helpful if you're going John 11. Let's read it to you. He cried. He knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news, but still he cried. He knew Lazarus would be alive again in moments, but still he cried. He knew death here is not forever. He knew eternity and the kingdom better than anyone 
else could, yet he wept. Because this world is full of pain and regret and loss and depression and devastation. He wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. I'm just so grateful that God cries at the sad parts. Now, I can't prove this, what I'm about to say, with a verse. I, I think I can prove it with an argument. Let me just say, I think there's enough evidence to say, or good evidence, to lean in this direction. I think Jesus is grieving right now. First Corinthians 13 says, love, you know, then the whole list. I should know it. I don't. But it says, love, then equal sign, mourns with those who mourn. God is love. I think he mourns now with those who mourn. I think he's grieving now. And I think God is the only one in the world who knows how to perfectly do this grieving and rejoicing at the same time. But he grieves for our grief and rejoices at what he is doing and the good he is producing. But I am comforted by the grieving God of creation. Number nine, grieve in the presence of Scripture. The most important thing you can do when you're grieving is not to quit reading your Bible. Not to quit coming to church where at least the Bible is taught for you. Maybe you can't read it, but let me be a stretcher bearer and help carry you to God in your grief. The kind of pain you're experiencing requires a help that you've never needed in life before. This is not the time to depart from God. The things that you've loved about God all your life, they're still there. You just can't see them. Grief is in the way. You can't feel them. You can't hear them. So you need to keep reading so you can keep remembering, I believed this four weeks ago. So keep reading what you believed for weeks ago because remember as we said last week when you're grieving all sorts of wrong voices come at you life will never be joyful again God doesn't care but let me tell you the voice that that will most speak to you in grief this is so real please hear this it is the voice of Satan People ask me almost every week, you nervous? Immeasurably nervous. I've even preached this sermon once already today. Still nervous. Let me tell you why I'm nervous. Because of what's going on in this room, at ceiling level and above the roof. The Bible says the powers of darkness are fighting against the powers of light for your soul. not preaching for play I'm not preaching because my job I'm preaching because your soul is at stake your joy is at stake your usefulness to God is at stake if you check out so I think Satan right now in the middle of your grieving when you're at your weakest says I'm going to come and finish you off when you have so little reserves that's why you need the scripture. I find the scripture so very comforting. My dad died August 22nd, 2010. I was preaching that Sunday morning at Hope Point on Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? My dad died at 11.01 a.m. August 22nd, 2010. 
He died 1101. I finished preaching that sermon that day at 1105. My father died while I was preaching. I love that. It was very comforting to me. I'd seen him on Saturday night before. I knew he was going to die. Came, drove to Hope Point, preached Romans 8.31. I left church that day. As a matter of fact, I was greeting so many people as is my joy at the end of the sermon. Lisa had to take my hand at the end of the service and said, we need to go now. I didn't know he had died yet. She said, we need to go. Your, your father's in heaven. I left Hope Point that day, preached his funeral on Tuesday, stayed with mom for two days, came back. Every seven days, Hope Point happens again. And preached on the next verse in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things? That verse took on a whole new meaning to me. What had happened to my dad? God had given him all the scripture, I love having to preach because it forces me to meet God in ways I wouldn't otherwise. That scripture is different for me because it let me know what death is. It's the gift of all things to a believer. Last, grieve in the presence of a void-filling God. So you have a traumatic loss, and you know what happens? You have a void in your life, a void, an agonizing emptiness. And an answer is not going to feel emptiness. A presence fills the loss of presence. Answers don't fill voids. So you don't need an answer. You need a presence. You need God. That's what he does. He fills voids. No time to get into it, but you know the verse, Genesis 1, verse 2, I think. And the earth was shapeless. It was void, and darkness was covering all of the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering like an eagle, like a mother eagle over the darkness. And then verse 4, and God said, let there be light. And into that void of darkness, God filled it up with himself. The story of the Bible is God coming into dark situations with the light of the radiance of the face of Jesus Christ. God does not leave his people in a bottomless pit of sorrow. He will not do that. It's where you are now, maybe. Let me just go through these very quickly because I want to get to the fourth one where I really want to sort of end today. But I'll go through these so you can know they exist then you can go back to them later. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 147, 3, he heals the brokenhearted. These are promises. These are promises. His honor is at stake. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning. And then the verse I want to camp out on for our final five minutes. Psalm 40, David, King David, in the middle of Immeasurable sorrow. We don't know what kind of sorrow it was. But he writes this. The fulfillment of the promise in his life. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined his ear to me. Heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, the pit of sorrow, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure he put a new 
song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and hear and put their trust in God. How long did David stay in that pit? I don't know. I'm thinking a long time. But he, God, brought David out of that pit, strengthened him, set him on a a firmer place, and then gave him a song to sing. And here's my point. This is what I want to end with. That song that David sang after the pit was a better type of joy than he had ever sung before. It was a greater song. The song that you sing after God lifts you out of the bottomless pit of sorrow where you say, it's impossible for me to heal, and you get healed, that song is better, more pleasurable, more meaningful than any song you have ever sung. And that is what God is working toward in your life, a greater song. Now I want to read you the hardest verse in the Bible to believe when you're in a night season of the soul. It's verification of what I just said. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That means the greater the sorrow, the greater the song. Well, that is hard to believe, isn't it, in the middle of sorrow? In fact, I counseled a mom on one occasion. Their child had thrown their life away with drugs and stuff. And this was, you know, months away from ground zero, so she could hear it because, again, she asked to hear it. What do you have for me? I got no hope. I don't see anything on the horizon that's good for my child. I said, Romans 8.18 is all I got. And I love her honesty. Because I told her, I said, there's a greater joy based on greater sorrow. And she looked at me and said, at this point right now, I'll take lesser joy. Thank you. Thank you for that honesty. You know what God's reply is? No. I will not let you have lesser joy. Therefore, I will not take away this sorrow because I so love you, I am after your fullest joy. That's what love does, right? Love works for the joy of another. So he's after a joy that is dependent on this sorrow. I have an addition to this sermon after, after the first service. Normally, I'm writing during this service. This time, this is live. Because of what somebody said after the first service. They said, Richard, four years ago, you were preaching, and you said that we should view sorrow like children riding with their parents up the mountains, wanting to stop at a stream because they are so impatient. And they say, this is enough. It's this mountain stream. I'll take a stream. Can we play, Daddy? Can we go right there? I want that stream. And the dad says, nope, there's a waterfall at the top of this mountain. We're going to the waterfall. I don't care about a waterfall. I want that stream. Dad says, no, we're driving on up the mountain. So he brings hurt to a child who wants his father to stop so he could play, because all he wants is a stream. So they were telling me, I didn't, even really, I didn't remember this. I mean, it's good. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wrote it down. I said, man, that's good. 
So he said, when you told us that, we had been through about four or five years of infertility. And all we wanted was a child. And we left the service that day saying, God, we want that mountain stream of a child. But if there's, so, if there's, if there's something greater than having a child, we're, we believe by faith right now there's a waterfall of joy that's greater than a stream, and we accept that. Two years later, when all hope was gone, they got pregnant. And he was so excited, this dad was so excited, standing right out there at the greeter table just an hour and a half ago. He said, I just want to tell you what happened in our life two, two weekends ago. We took our two-year-old to see his first waterfall. I'm so sorry you hurt, but that's what God is doing. There is a waterfall somewhere in all of this pain that he is taking you to. You know what I think about all the time? Are you into the human Jesus? I'm really into the human Jesus. So what do you mean by that? I mean, he came to earth to become human. That humanity never left him. People were getting really messed up. But they well, you know, he resurrected from the dead. No, I don't know how he took humanity to the Godhead. Can't explain that. He is human and he is God, but I love his humanity. Because here's why. I wonder, what did it feel like when Jesus rose from the dead in his humanity? They had pulverized him on the cross, mocked him, spit on him, laughed at him, beat him, laid him in that, that grave, what did it feel like when human eyes opened? What kind of joy did Jesus Christ experience when he got off of that rock where they laid him and put his human feet on that floor? And that stone rolled away by the power of God, the power of an angel, and he looked outside of that stone, that door, that grave, and saw that cross that had taken his life, and he was alive. What kind of joy is that? That is what God is after, to give you that kind of joy. So we leave here today believing by faith, my clicker will work that resurrection joy is greater than crucifixion sorrow let's pray father we thank you for Jesus and all the joy that was his because he obeyed you to the end all the joy that was his when joy was taken from him on the cross. We thank you for all that he experienced when he walked out in Jerusalem and brought joy to his disciples and to his mom and, to, and when he caused such a holy havoc in nature. And all the tombs released those that were gripped by death of the believing ones. What a beautiful day when your son rose. An infinite joy, eternal, uninterrupted joy was his. And Lord, we thank you for all over the world, last night while we slept, that this 
joy one after another was experienced by those who just moments ago were experiencing crucifixion sorrow. Thank you, God of the mountain, driver of the car, denier of our little streams and our important streams. Thank you for the waterfall of joy that's coming. We believe it by faith when our feeling says no. So increase our faith, oh God, through the song we're about to sing, through the message we've heard, through the embrace of friends who represent the nearness of the near God. Help us believe the witness of history in the Bible of the waterfall of joy Christ purchased and is preparing for all those who love him. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.